Did you know that Moses used to wear a mask on his face? Long before the coronavirus and all the debates about the validity of wearing a mask in public, does it protect the one who wears the mask or does it protect his neighbor or does it really protect anyone at all? Long before the mask debates of COVID-19, Moses would wear a mask on his face. Why? To protect the people of Israel. To protect them from whom? From Yahweh. To protect them from God. Moses wore a mask to protect Israel from the presence of the Lord. So Moses was doing this whole protect others by wearing a mask thing long before we ever were. And though people may debate today whether or not we should be wearing masks, no one was debating it in Moses' day. The nation of Israel wanted Moses to wear a mask to protect them from God, to hide the glory of God that was beaming and radiating from the face of Moses. And that's what Paul's talking about in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but I also want you to turn to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to read Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35, before we look at 2 Corinthians. So turn to 2 Corinthians 3 and also Exodus 34. We're going to begin in Exodus 34. But what Paul says in this section in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 has Exodus chapters 32, 33, and 34 in the background. That means then that for, in order for us to understand what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we need to get in a time machine and go back to Mount Sinai to the time when Moses received the Ten Commandments from the Lord and he had to wear a mask to cover his face. So, while you turn to Exodus 34, verse 29, do that now if you haven't, I'm going to give you our big idea today and then summarize what leads up to this verse in Exodus 34, and then we'll finally jump over to 2 Corinthians 3. Here's our big idea today. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are loved. You are accepted. You are welcome into God's family, and it's not by anything that you have ever done or anything that you will ever do. In fact, you are counted, Christian, if you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you are counted perfectly obedient in Christ right now. That's how God sees you. You are forgiven, and you're righteous, and you're loved by God. No matter what you feel, no matter what you feel this morning, right now. So perhaps you need to hear that at the outset of this sermon. If you are a Christian, you are forgiven of all of your sins. Jesus is never going to bring them up again, ever. Every single one of them is forgiven and forgotten by Jesus. The glory of the new covenant is that Jesus cannot remember 
your sins. And you are righteous and blameless in God's sight. The glory of the new covenant is that when God looks at you, get a load of this, he sees Jesus. Right now where you are, God looking at you, he doesn't see what you did yesterday, he sees his son Jesus. That is the gospel. And that's why the word gospel means good news. You are loved, Christian, with an everlasting, and as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Maybe you needed that at the beginning of this sermon. So you can breathe now and rest and just listen to God's word and listen to the gospel this morning. So may the burden of your sin be lifted by the Holy Spirit right now. Okay, we are forgiven and we are righteous and we are loved. Now, let's recap what happened at Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments. Recall that the Lord delivered and led Moses and company out of slavery in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They escaped the clutches of Pharaoh. Then they traveled to Mount Sinai where the Lord Yahweh, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh came down on top of Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with the nation of Israel. And we read in Exodus 19 that when the Lord appeared at Sinai, He spoke to the people and he appeared in smoke and fire and thunder and lightning and earthquakes. Whoa. And the people were rightly afraid. And they told Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God to speak to us or we're going to die. But then after this, the nation of Israel said two times that they would obey all of the commandments of the Lord. They said, we'll obey, we'll we'll do it all, if only they knew just how sinful they were. They thought, we can obey all of the Lord's laws. So two times we read in Exodus, they said, we can do this, we got this, we can do the law. Understand this grace. The sinful human heart always meets God's law and extends its hand and shakes it and says, I think you've met your match, Mr. Law. We, like Israel, think that we can be good enough, that we are good enough, that somehow we can earn our way into God's love, we can somehow earn His favor. And that's one of the devil's favorite lies that he likes to whisper to us. He likes to tell us, you can earn God's love if you try hard enough and you do just a little bit more. As Chad Bird says, Satan's two favorite lies, number one, with enough effort, you can do the law. And number two, with enough sin, you can undo the gospel. See, because of Adam's sin, we are wired to think this way, and we often fall for these lies. We think that with just enough effort, we can actually be good enough to earn God's favor. We can earn God's love by keeping His law. 
as if we could impress a holy God with our righteousness. As if. And we also think that with just enough sin, we can actually undo the gospel. Undo what Jesus has already done for us. As if God would kick us out of his family. As if. Those are Satan's two favorite lies. With enough effort, you can do the law. And with enough sin, you can undo the gospel. And God's people have been buying those two lies, hook, line, and sinker, ever since Adam and Eve left the garden. Those two lies plagued the nation of Israel all throughout her history. The nation of Israel thought that with enough effort, they could do the law. Boy, were they in for a big surprise. Because they came unglued spiritually when Moses ascended Mount Sinai. They stayed put in the camp while Moses went up Mount Sinai to meet with Yahweh. And the Lord spoke to Moses and gave him all these laws and rules and regulations about how to build the tabernacle, how to come into his presence, how to worship him. And the Lord also wrote the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. So he gave Moses two copies of the Ten Commandments on these stone tablets. And so Moses was on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days. And while he was gone, the nation of Israel got antsy. I mean, Moses went up there where there was fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and earthquake. And what did they think? It's been 40 days. This guy is dead. (laughs) He went up the mountain crazy guy, and now he's dead. What did he expect? So they get antsy. They thought he died. And so they told Aaron, Moses' brother, make us some idols, some gods that we can worship. And so Aaron collected everybody's gold earrings. He melted the gold, and then Aaron got some wood and sculpted a cow, and then he poured the gold over the cow, and everybody worshipped it, and everybody sacrificed to it, and they shouted, these are the gods who brought us up out of Egypt. And as Moses comes down Mount Sinai, 40 days later, he sees this golden calf, he sees what's happening, and he throws the two copies of the Ten Commandments down on the ground, and they shatter. He can't believe it. And then he goes to his brother, Aaron, and he says, what happened? And Aaron, trying to pass the buck, says, you were gone so long, we thought you died. And they told me to make them some gods that they could worship, so I told them to give me all their gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out jumped this calf. That's what he says happened. Threw it in the fire, and this thing jumped out. Aaron conveniently left out how he probably chopped down the tree and carved and whittled the the cow out of wood. In fact, at the end of chapter 32, it goes out of its way, the last verse of chapter 32, to say that Aaron made the golden calf. Well, after this, 3,000 people were struck down by the sword and killed for worshiping the golden calf. And then Moses goes back up Mount Sinai to intercede for the people. And the Lord told Moses, I can't go with you into the land of Canaan because you people are so sinful, so stiff-necked that if I dwell among you, I'm going to wipe all of you out. I'll destroy you on the way. See, the consequences of their sin with the golden calf meant that God's presence would no longer accompany them 
He says in Exodus 32, verses 2 and 3, I'm going to have to send an angel instead because if I go, you people... Well, then Moses asked Yahweh, please go with us. If you, if you don't go with us, there's no point in us going at all. And so the Lord said, okay, I will go. Moses then asked the Lord to show him his glory. He said, show me your glory, Lord. And Yahweh said, I'm going to put you in this place in the rock. You can't see my front side. You can see my backside, and I will pass by. So Yahweh passed by, and Moses got a peek at God's glory. And then Moses now, instead of the Lord, carved the Ten Commandments version 2.0 on two tablets of stone. And this whole time, Moses has been gone another 40 days. And so he returns to camp after being with Yahweh for another 40 days. And that's where we pick up in Exodus 34. So let's see what happened. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 39, and hear the word of the Lord. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses came down from Mount Sinai after 40 days and his face was aglow with God's glory, but he had no idea. And everybody was scared when he showed up in camp. Imagine, 3,000 people 40 days ago had been slaughtered and now Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and his face is beaming with God's glory. They're scared. They have never seen anything like this. This was like an episode of The Twilight Zone. This was ancient Near Eastern sci-fi is what it was. So they wouldn't go near Moses. He said, y'all need to come closer. So he put a, a, a veil, a mask over his face to hide the glory of the Lord because it was too much for the people to look at. Now, imagine that. If the glory of the Lord shining off of the face of Moses was so awesome and so dreadful that the people were scared of Moses, then what in the world is the real, tangible glory of the Lord like? Wow. We'll talk about that next week. Moses would socially distance himself and go meet Yahweh outside the camp. The Lord was separated from his people outside the camp. The people were correct to be fearful of the shining face of Moses because it reminded them of Yahweh's presence and his judgment. Moses wore the veil. He wore the mask to protect the people from Yahweh destroying them. His veil was not meant to hide the glory, but to protect the stiff-necked people. As scholar Scott Hafeman says, he says, Moses' veiled mediation of God's glory permit his presence to remain in Israel's midst without destroying her. 
In this regard, Moses' veiling himself is an act of mercy. At the same time, the very fact that Moses must veil his face is an act of judgment because of the hardness of Israel's heart. This veil not only preserves Israel from being destroyed, it also keeps her from being transformed. And so Moses would take the veil off when he went into the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord. But after speaking with Yahweh, before returning to camp, he would put his mask on again because the glory of the Lord shining off his face was too much for the people of Israel. And all of that is the background to what we will see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So turn there in your Bibles now. We're going to see what Paul has to say, his commentary on what took place in Exodus. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7, hear the word of the Lord. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So you can't miss Paul's point here. He uses the word glory, the Greek word doxa here, 10 times in verses 7 and 11. What Paul is doing here is he is contrasting the Mosaic law summed up in the Ten Commandments, and he's contrasting that with the gospel. Both came with glory. But God's glory beaming from Moses' face was just too much for the people at Sinai to look at. That's how the law, that's how the Ten Commandments showed up. The law came with great glory at Sinai. And it exercised a ministry of judgment and death on the nation of Israel. Even though they swore two times that they would do all that Yahweh said, they couldn't keep the law for one day, could they? We'll do everything the Lord says. We'll do everything the Lord says. And they failed on the very first day. And they broke the very first commandment which is you shall have no other gods before me. That's why they are afraid to look at the shining face of Moses because of the golden calf incident. And that's why Paul calls it a ministry of death here in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 because that's what the law does. It kills us. It kills our self-righteousness. When you read the Ten Commandments, you realize, oh man, I've broken every single one of those. It brings judgment. Paul also calls the giving of the law here in 2 Corinthians, in verse 8, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. Now, why does Paul call the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, why does he call it a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation? If the law came from God and God is good, why is it called a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation? Because that was one of the purposes of God's law. The law comes like a guillotine and slams down on our hearts and exposes us for who we are. Sinners and glory thieves who want to build our own little kingdoms where we are the kings and the queens. 
And the law then drives us to see that our deepest, greatest need is for rescue from our sin and rescue from the coming wrath of God. So the law was given to Israel to show them their sin and God's holiness, to restrain evil in the land, and to show them what pleases God. This is what John Calvin and the Reformers called the three uses of the law. The first one is that the law reveals God's holiness and reveals God, uh, our sin. And so it drives us to Jesus. It makes us say, oh my goodness, I need a Savior because I haven't done the ten things. God gave me ten fingers to remember the ten commandments and I can't keep them. I need a Savior Secondly, the second purpose of the law is that the law restrains evil in the land. The law is good. And all those verses that you love to read about in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that talk about what you should do and not do, all those things that you have highlighted and that you put on social media because you love them, because they say things like, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, those kinds of verses that you love, They're good because they help restrain evil in the land. For instance, you shall not murder is good because it restrains people from murdering. Typically it does. It should. So the law is good because you don't want to live in a society where everyone goes around and they can murder and get away with it. So the law is good. And you shall not steal is good because you don't want people stealing your things, right? In ancient Israel... You didn't want anybody stealing your donkey. So you were glad that there was a law that says you shall not steal. This was a good law because it was supposed to restrain evil in the land. Take, for instance, if you were working in the field one day and your axe head flew off and landed in a guy's chest and killed him and it was an accident. What do you think the family's going to do? They want to kill you. So the Lord set up in his law cities of refuge that you could escape to and you would be protected there until there was a, a, you went to court and figured out this was an accident. He didn't kill him on purpose. But if that law wasn't there, guess who comes into your tent at night and puts an axe through your chest? The guy's brother. So the cities of refuge, these laws about manslaughter were good because they restrained evil in the land. That's the second use of God's law. The third use is that the law shows believers, it shows God's children how to live lives that please God. We are saved by faith apart from works of the law, but once we are saved, we go back to God's law in order to live lives that please Him. Not to try to earn His favor, but because we already have His favor. And so we say, I want to honor you, Lord. And the law, God's law, tells us how to live. It really tells us how to love our neighbor. Because God doesn't need our good works, does He? But our neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works. He's sufficient in Himself. He didn't wake up today saying, oh my goodness, I'm at 97%. I need some good works for some people so I can be God. God does not need your good works but your neighbor does, and God's law tells you how to love your neighbor. So those are the three uses of the law. The law is good, but it's not ever to be used as a means to gain favor, to gain right standing with God. That only comes through the gospel. In fact, the law is not your source of condemnation either. You are. Your heart is. 
the law just shows up and turns the light on and says, what in the world do we have here? The law simply calls it as it sees it. And it calls us sinners and lawbreakers. And so the law is good. But we aren't. The law could tell you what to do, but it could not empower you to obey it. As Paul says in Romans 8, 3 and 4, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So under the old covenant, the law could not empower obedience. John Bunyan wrote these words that kind of capture the heart of the matter. He said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. What Bunyan means is that the law can tell us who we are and the law can tell us you're in serious trouble. Because there is a holy God, and you are not like him. You are a sinner. But only the gospel can put wind in our sails. The gospel bids us fly, and it gives us wings. So we need the law for our self-righteousness. We need the law for our hypocrisy. Because we all think we're better than someone, don't we? We may all acknowledge, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not like that person. That person does this, and that person does that, and they do this, and they do that. That's self-righteousness. And we need God's law to get in our face and say, you were just as bad as they are. And we need the gospel for our despair. When we do find ourselves saying, well, that person is saying, I don't like it. We need the gospel then. We need the gospel for our guilt and for our shame when we sin. So it's not as though the law had failed. No, the law is holy and righteous and good. Paul says that in Romans 7. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is with Israel. The problem is with us. It's our hearts. We are sinful, and because we are, the law cannot give us life. It cannot give us the power to obey its demands, but the Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can. Look at verse 8 again. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." If the law, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation came with incredible glory, so much so that Moses had to wear a veil to cover his glorious face, then what of the gospel? What's the glory of the gospel like? If the law comes and Moses' face is shining, then what is the glory of the gospel? Paul calls it, the ministry of the Spirit here, and he calls it the ministry of righteousness. If the law under the old covenant came with this kind of glory, then what in the world is the glory like in the new covenant? 
It's so glorious, Paul says, that the old glory is being brought to an end and has come to have no glory at all. That's how glorious the gospel is. It eclipses and makes the old covenant glory fade away. In the new covenant, we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey. And now we get unlimited, repeated, binge-watching exposures to the glory of God. No veils, no masks, no God, social distancing outside in a tent, away from the camp. But now we get unlimited, repeated exposures to the glory of God. Ongoing glory, not like Moses' fading glory. And we get the righteousness required in God's law, imputed and credited to our account. We don't earn it. It's just a gift. It's like you wake up one day and you're like, I've got $10,000 in my bank account. And Bank of America says, that's just a gift from us. Really? God credits the righteousness of his son to your account and you do nothing to get it. It's a gift. That's the glory of the new covenant. You can't earn your way in and you can't sin your way out. You're in God's family. He's not going to kick you out of his family. You're not going to wake up one day and God says, I've thrown all your belongings out on the front lawn. Get out. You can't earn your way in. You can't sin your way out. You can't do enough of the law to gain God's favor. And you can't undo the gospel by a lot of your sin. And so the righteousness of God, the standard of perfection that God demands of each of us is revealed in the law. And none of us measure up. We're all down for the count spiritually. We get crushed by the law's demands, these demands of perfection. And that's why Paul calls it a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. What did Jesus say? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're not supposed to hear that and say, okay, I'll give it my best shot. Where is Jesus when he says that? The sermon on the mount, like Moses was on Mount Sinai, Jesus is giving them the law again to show them they can't do it. So that when they hear, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that they would say, oh my goodness, I can't do that. What am I going to do? And that should cause us to long for what the gospel reveals. The righteousness from God. The law reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness from God. The perfect record of law keeping, the sinless record, the sinless life that Jesus secured for us. It can be ours if we repent of our sins and believe and trust in him. And if we do that, that removes all traces of condemnation. So the law of God cannot condemn us anymore because we have been credited with Jesus' righteousness. We were crucified with Jesus on the cross. When Jesus died, we died with him. When he was judged at the cross, we were judged at the cross with him. So our judgment day was 2,000 years ago at the cross. You have nothing to fear, Christian, on the judgment day. Nothing. Because you're righteous now. Do you think God's going to change his mind and say, I declare you righteous now, but on judgment day, I'm going to rewind. You are righteous now. You were judged at the cross when Jesus died in your place. That was your judgment day. So that when you stand before God, he 
says, I see Jesus. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done. Some Christians think, I'm going to be well done. I'm going to be cooked when I stand before the Lord. Be like a well done steak. I'm just going to be fried. No, you're going to stand there and he's going to see his son in you and he's going to say, well done. Enter into the joy, the joy of your master. All of the penalty that the law demands for lawbreakers like us was met in Jesus. We sing it, don't we? Jesus paid it all. I know you sing it. Do you believe it? In that moment when Jesus died, we too died to the law's condemning power. And so the law cannot come and condemn us anymore because we have been united with Jesus. The curse of the law is gone for believers. The condemnation of the law is gone. As Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now how much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? A little bit. Is there going to be a little bit of condemnation for you when you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day? No, there is now no condemnation. And there will be none on that day too. That means, Christian, if you feel condemned for your sin, you know that gnawing sense of guilt and shame and condemnation, if you feel condemned for your sin, you are not living in step with the gospel. It's like the gospel says, hold my hand and let's skip. And you're just, it's having to hold you and drag you. That's not living in step with the gospel. If you feel condemned for your sin, if you feel like you must be punished for your sin, you're not living in step with the gospel. If you feel like you have to obey to get God's favor and to earn his love, you're not living in step with the gospel. In fact, your unworthy feelings will put you out of step with the gospel. Your feelings say to you, you have to do something. You have to pay for this sin. You at least have to wallow for two hours before you can ever go into God's presence again. You have to earn his forgiveness. No. You don't have to be put out in a timeout. There's no probationary period after sinning. Like, well, I just did that thing that 10,000 times I said I would never do, and I did it again. And I can't just go to God and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Maybe if I go here in the corner and wait an hour, he'll cool off. And maybe then I can kind of sneak back in and say, please forgive me. That's not the gospel. It's true. You are a sinner. You do bad things. Really bad things. And so do I. But the penalty for your sin has been paid. Jesus took the curse of the law for us. We have died to its condemning power and we have been given righteousness because this is a ministry of righteousness, Paul says. And now the Spirit empowers us to obey the law. So listen to the Holy Spirit today. He's telling you, you are forgiven. You are righteous, blameless in God's eyes. And you are loved. You are not condemned. You need to drown out those voices when the devil tries to tell you that, when he tries to remind you of your sin. You just need to go, la, 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 I'm forgiven, Romans 8, 1. Do you ever sing worship and the devil starts speaking to you about your sins? That was me this morning over there. If you were watching, I probably said, shut up. <laughs> you know, it's like, shut up, I'm forgiven. I'm not condemned. I, this morning I said, I don't know what you're talking about. 
Because the devil was reminding me of my sin this past week, and I just said, I don't know what you're talking about because I'm forgiven. The Lord has not given up on you in spite of all the ways that you have failed him this week. He does not turn away in disgust at you and think, can't you just get your act together for once? He's not waiting to visit his wrath on you like the nation of Israel. His compassion towards you in your sin is warm and tender. So you don't have to try to distance yourself from him like Israel did. You can come just as you are, just as messed up as you are. Let's close with something that Ian Duguid says about God's red-hot burning love for his people. He said, when Jesus calls you to himself, he doesn't just say to you, I love you for now. Let's see how this works out as we go along. If you're holy enough and devout enough over the next 50 years or so, then maybe I'll take you to heaven when you die. No. When God calls you to himself, he legally binds himself to you in a covenant relationship permanently and unbreakably. The security of your salvation does not rest, therefore, on the strength of your vow to follow Jesus. Rather, it rests on his initial and irrevocable choice. God is not stuck with you forever as if you both had too much to drink in Las Vegas and made a bad decision while passing a drive through wedding chapel. God actually loves you. Hard though that may be for us to grasp sometimes. He knows you inside and out with all your quirks and weaknesses, all your habitual sins and your heart idolatries, and yet He still loves you personally. Nothing less than such an intense burning love could ever explain the cross. A mild fondness for humanity would not have been enough to propel the infinite glorious God of all creation to humble himself to the point of taking on flesh and becoming a mere mortal? Why would the eternal one enter time and take on all the limitations of our tiny form? Burning love. Why would the Holy One enter a sinful world and befriend deeply broken sinners? Burning love. The Father who now sees us united to His Son delights to gaze on us with the same intensity with which he delights in his own son. Israel was afraid to gaze at the glory beaming from the face of Moses. And in the gospel, the glory of the new covenant is that God delights to set his gaze on sinners like us because he sees his son when he sees us. That's the glory of the new covenant. No veils no masks, no tent of meeting outside the camp. We have free, unlimited access to God through Christ. God always delighting in us because of His Son, Jesus. Maybe you think you've gone too far. Maybe you've really blown it. And so maybe you think you're just too far beyond God's grace. Maybe you're thinking there's no way that God could love you after all your unbroken promises. Maybe you think you deserve to be struck down by the sword like those at Sinai. Let me give you some good news right now. You can start over today, right now, just a fresh start 
Just saying, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You can start over today. You haven't drifted too far, and Jesus has not let you go. He's calling you home today. He will not give you up. He can't. What Jesus did on the cross for your sins is too costly for God to just give you up and desert you. He welcomes you. He will have you. There are people in this world that want nothing to do with you. They can't stand you, and you don't even know that. (laughs) But they're out there, and they don't want you. When you come near, they cringe. They're like, oh, gosh, that guy again. When Jesus sees you, he's like, there is my favorite guy right there. He will have you. So I don't care what kind of week you had, what you did, what you said, what you thought. Right now, if you are in Christ, you are secure and you're safe, safe in his open arms. So hear the Holy Spirit say to you once again, you are forgiven, you are righteous, and you are loved. Don't listen to the devil. He wants you to feel condemned. He wants you to stay under the ministry of condemnation. Where you listen to those voices that say, I can't believe you did that again. Or you need to do more. Put in more work. Try harder. You can earn God's love and affection. Or the lie that says, if you sin enough, you will undo the gospel. That's the ministry of condemnation. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, wants you to be free. Light on your feet, skipping with Him, with joy, walking in freedom, walking in the light. The Ho- you know what the Holy Spirit wants you to do today? To enjoy your forgiveness. Let's do that today, okay? I heard Rod Rosenblatt say yesterday at a conference, it is a big loss if you go to church every Sunday and you are not told that you are forgiven. We don't want to be that kind of church. We want you to come to church every Sunday and to hear that you are forgiven. So Christian, trusting in Christ alone, let me say it again. You are forgiven. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your ministry in our lives and in our hearts. Thank you for uniting us to Jesus. Thank you for regenerating us. Thank you for your ongoing presence in our life. Thank you that you are empowering us to obey the law, not to earn your favor, but to better help our neighbor. We admit our extreme dependence on you, Holy Spirit. Would you help us to love God and love our neighbor for your glory? Would you help us to walk in freedom today? Would you help us to skip like children believing the gospel today? Would you help us to enjoy our forgiveness? In Jesus' name, amen.